Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we continue on in the series, Christ and His Mission, a study of Luke. The name of the sermon is called Destined for Glory, and Pastor David will be preaching from Luke 9, 18 through 36. Let's join Pastor David now. Well, as we mentioned, uh, God's mission, God's story uh, is what starts our story of redemption. As we look at baptism and swim back upstream, we're going to see the loving pursuit of our almighty Lord. And we see this in the Gospel of Luke, that Christ, in his mission, has a self-sacrificial mission. That at the core of, of the Gospel, at the core of the work of Jesus Christ, is a path that leads him down the road of self-sacrifice. Uh, you can meet me in the Gospel of Luke, uh, however you want to navigate there. If you've got a Bible with you, if you've got a phone uh, with you, uh, meet me there, Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 36. The text should also be printed in the uh, paper that you received with the song lyrics, so multiple avenues to follow along as we go through uh, this passage today. And right out of the gates, we see again Christ's mission is one that will lead him to the cross, one that will lead him down the ultimate journey of self-sacrifice. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Let me read these first verses. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Others said, Elijah, and others, uh, that one of the prophets of old had risen. And he, um, then Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am, Jesus asked. That's a question that he asked the disciples. It's a question worth wrestling with for yourself. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he an inspirational figure? Is he a helpful teacher? Is he a, a, a person of history? Is he, in your mind, imaginary and not real? Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus asked this question of his followers, and Peter answers him, the Christ of God the Messiah of God, the Holy One of God, the Anointed One of God, the, the, the greater Moses, the greater David, the true prophet, priest, and king, the, the, the one that we were anticipating from the book of Genesis on, the one that would come to crush Satan's head, that he would come and redeem his people and all people by his uh, incredible grace, by his stripes we are healed. Peter says, uh, you are the Christ of God, the Messiah of God. Verse 21. Jesus strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And here early in the Gospel of Luke, one of the very early accounts of uh, so clearly Jesus is showing us and telling us where his journey, where his mission is going to lead him. That he would, as it says here, four things, suffer, he'd be rejected, he'd be killed, and on the third day, he would be raised. Now, if Jesus was the Messiah of the world's making, if he was the Messiah of our desires and our plans, a Messiah whose mission ends in his own death would be a failed Messiah. How is it helpful that the, the great deliverer that all history has been waiting for after three years of a public ministry 
would end in a shameful death. Where's the deliverance there? But Jesus isn't the Messiah of of the world's creation. He's not the Messiah of our mindset, our thinking. He's God's Messiah. And in that um, divine acknowledgement, we see that Jesus has a mission not of his own, but one that he is submitting to God the Father, one that he has been given by God the Father, and a mission that is for us. Now notice, Jesus' mission is not just a mission for his sake, it's a mission for your sake. His mission is self-sacrificial. This is the path, this is the road to the cross, dying on behalf of others. In the ultimate sense, Jesus has done that for, for our eternity, for our souls. That he has died on our behalf. His mission is self-sacrificial. It's vicarious. This is this, a beautiful idea. As you go through the New Testament, sometimes you'll run into phrases like in Christ or with Christ. Did you know that's not just mere religious sentimentality? That's identity statements of what is ultimately true of you in Jesus Christ. Did you know that? That if, if his gospel, if his mission is vicarious, that means when he died on the cross, and if you put your faith in him, so did you. You died with him there. Your sin died with him there. Death died with him there. That when he was raised to new life, you were raised too. That by faith you are connected with him. His story becomes yours. Your story becomes his. He swaps places. And this is the core of the, of the Christian gospel, is it not? It's a vicarious atonement, a vicarious sacrifice. He in our place. And it's a victorious mission. Notice that Jesus, uh, when he says here in verse 22, suffer, rejected, killed, but that's not the end, is it? On the third day, raised. That his ending is a victorious one. That if there is a Messiah, if there is a king that come, that death itself could not keep him down, my friends, is there any greater king? Is there any higher power? Is there anyone that can face death and see it as simply a detour, simply a path to walk through? Death, where is your sting? <laughs> Hell, where is your, where is your hold? that our king went through death and out the other side. He is raised victorious, and this is Christ's mission on our behalf. It's a self-sacrificial mission. And if this is the mission of Christ, our God's Messiah sent for us, that means when we are in him, the Christian journey of discipleship is one of self-denial. If his mission is self-sacrificial on our behalf, then our life every single day is a journey of self-denial, paradoxical self-denial, countercultural self-denial. One where Jesus says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. That's exactly what he says next. Look at these next verses, 23 and following. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there is some standing here who will not taste death 
until they see the kingdom of God. Now go back up to those earlier verses, 23 and 24, um, as we see there, this pattern of self-denial. Now when Jesus says, pick up your cross daily and follow me, we see that the very way we enter into the faith is the very manner by which we live the faith every single day. Jesus is not saying we have to get saved again every single day. We're saved once and for all based on what Christ has done. And then from that grace, every single day, we, we are sanctified. Some of you perhaps heard that word before. God continues every single day to grow us and shape us and mold us more into the image of Christ. And he does that through our self-denial. And I don't know if there is a better image to illustrate that than baptism. It's exactly, it's, it's the gospel made visible. That what we're doing today isn't saving anybody. What we're doing today in baptism isn't even strengthening someone standing before God. But what we're doing today in baptism is reflecting something that is very true of them. That literally, they have been brought underneath the waters as if going down to death. We're going to bring them back up, don't worry. It's a metaphor. It's an illustration. <laughs> bring them down below the waters and then back up out of the waters, death to life. This is how we enter the faith. This is how we live every single day as a Christian as we follow him. It's the same grace that gets us into the faith as the same grace that sanctifies and grows us as we walk and obey and follow him. Now, the biblical gospel is one that says, I am forsaking all of my self-salvation efforts to throw myself on the sheer grace of Christ and Christ alone. That when we come to Christ, we come and we offer ourselves. We're, we're forsaking our self-salvation efforts. Because outside of Christ, we might, you might not use this language, but every single one of us is trying to save ourselves. And that can be done in very religious or very irreligious ways. And the first one's sneaky, because it can look very Christian. But if, if, if our effort, if our energy... If our morality, if the desire to live a good life is what we are looking to, 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 to be the standing that we have before God, if we're looking to our own righteousness to save us, if we're looking at our own good things, even good things that we do, and then saying, God, surely you must let me in. Surely you should bless me because look at all the wonderful things I'm doing. Look at how I'm raising my kids. Look how I'm serving. Look how I'm giving. Look, the, look at the things that I'm not doing. Look at the things that I'm not saying. And if we look at all of those things as, as a way to kind of want to obligate God to save us, do you realize, as another has said, Jesus might be an inspirational figure to you. He might be an example to you, but he's not your savior. We're trying to save ourselves. We have to look to not our own righteousness, but to a righteousness that comes from outside of us. Christ's righteousness for us. That baptism and his acknowledgement that I can't save myself at all. I need Christ. So I forsake my self-saving efforts to lean completely and totally on him. Whether that's very religious or very irreligious. Now, you probably wouldn't be using terms, uh, religious terms to describe it. But do you realize, do you recognize that what we use to um, give ourselves meaning and value and purpose and dignity, what we bank on in, in identity formation and creation and cultivation, whether that's career 
whether that could be anything that we place our ultimate hope on, anything that we're trying to chase after to answer the big problems of life. What do I do about death and suffering? What do I do about lasting meaning and purpose? What do I do about uh, how, how, to, how to advance and grow in this world? Do you see? In different language, do you see what we're doing? We're trying to save ourselves. The gospel says, look to Jesus. Don't look at your good behavior. Don't look at behavior that you would consider outside of religion. If you're saying, I, I don't want to be a part of religion. I'm not, I'm, I don't want anything to do with that. But do you see? Do you recognize what your heart is still doing? You're trying to be your own savior. And either way we go, we're going to fall short. The gospel says, turn to Jesus. Come to me. Die with me, Jesus says. Let my death be yours. Let my righteousness be yours. And then we walk every single day in that pattern of self-denial. And notice how paradoxical this is. Look again at what Jesus says. Verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The reason it's paradoxical is because when you offer over your life to Jesus, it looks like, and in a real way, it is. You're dying to self. You're giving of yourself. But my friends, what you receive back from him is not less of life. It's life to its fullest. It's life eternal. That when we walk the pattern of self-denial in submission to God's ways, God's directives, God's teachings, God's design, it doesn't lessen us as persons. It's walking into the fullness design of what God has had for us, what God has designed for us, Christ in us. That what we offer to him in, in self-denial, he, he, he returns back in himself and that is the path of, of greatest Christian human flourishing. It's paradoxical. We think we are losing, but actually we are gaining. That he says it himself. We can't improve on the language. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? It's paradoxical and it's countercultural. It's countercultural. There, uh, there may not be a, a, a more um, startling or disrupting a statement for Jesus to say in, in this time that we live in. Jesus says, deny yourself. It's not the message you're going to see as you're scrolling through social media. It's not the message that you're going to see as you're uh, streaming uh, media online. Jesus says, deny yourself. We're very familiar and very common with, with, with the idea of, 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 of self-definition and self-expression. The world says, be yourself and then express it, assert yourself. Jesus says something completely different. Deny yourself. Come to me, give me your life, and I will replace it with life and life eternal. Baptism is this visible representation of the gospel that says that someone's claiming that I am in Christ and he is in me in my truest identity. My ultimate allegiance is in him. Baptism reflects the gospel. It's a visible expression of an invisible reality. That, that which Christ has done in our life, we declare it and show it through baptism. And it's also, it's also a line in the sand, isn't it? It's a flag in the ground. It's saying that I am his and I want the world to know. It, it, it's a step and it's a statement that he is our true 
king, that he is not just a king, but my king. And I want to follow him every single day of my life, that his grace would sustain me every single day. If his path is self-sacrificial, if his mission is self-sacrificial, our path is a path of self-denial. And as God walks along with us on this path, he leads us, he leads us on the way to glory. Christ himself paves the way to glory. Take a look again at this startling uh, verse, 27. When Jesus says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What does that mean? <laughs> so Jesus is speaking to a number of people, some followers, some disciples, and he says, oh, by the way, some of you are going to see the kingdom before you pass away. And we might think, well, hold on. What about us? I mean, isn't the kingdom something in the future? What does this mean that some that Jesus is speaking to at that moment are not going to taste death until they see the kingdom of God? Jesus, what he's about to do is to give a future glimpse in the present. The, pre the future is going to peek into the present. The future glorious splendor of God's kingdom is going to manifest itself in a way early. We know that the kingdom, the kingdom is already here in Jesus Christ and his work and his mission, and it's also not yet fully come until he returns again. Now look at these next verses, this peak that God gives into this incredible display of his glory. Verse 28 and 31. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, even in those few verses, I don't, I don't want to let these pass you by. When you look at these verses and start to remember the story of the Bible from, from start to finish, you start to ask questions like, wait a second, who was it? Who was the prophet of ancient times that went up on a mountain to commune with God? Moses. Who, who was that prophet of ancient times that it was said that he spoke to God face to face? Moses. Who was that prophet of ancient times uh, that, that encountered God on a mountain, smoke descending, God's glory descending, and, and, and he meets him, Moses. Who, who was it that led God's people in this great departure, if you will, this great exodus out of slavery from Egypt, this great exodus uh, uh, free and, and away from uh, the wrath of God and the plagues displayed over the land of Egypt? Who was the leader who led God's people out? Moses, was it not? Who do we see this passage pointing to the better Moses, the second Moses, the true and ultimate Moses, Jesus himself. Now look at this again. Notice some of these allusions. Eight days after these things, Jesus took Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Jesus, in a way, is, is reliving, retelling, fulfilling the Exodus experience. He's, he's going up on a mountain. He's communing with God. We see, as, uh, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was 
altered, and its clothing became dazzling white. Remember when Moses encountered God, that his glory, God's glory, made Moses' face shine? That the second Moses, the true Moses, Jesus, his face wasn't just emanating because he had encountered God's glory. His face was altered because he is God's glory. He is the presence of God on the mountain. As God prays, uh, Jesus prays to God the Father. And we see Jesus speaking, this is awesome, uh, to Moses and Elijah, by the way, which is incredible. And then verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, his departure. Now, if, you've got a, if you're using a Bible for your text, some of, some of your Bible versions might have a little footnote there that gives a little peek into what that word in the original language is. Guess how you pronounce the Greek word that's used to translate departure? Exodon, from the word exodos. Sound familiar? That Jesus is speaking about a coming departure that he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Do you see what he's doing? He's leading his people in the ultimate deliverance. He's leading his people through death. He's going to Jerusalem, through death, through the cross, through the grave, risen on the other side, and he's leading the way for you and me. He's paving our way into glory. And then the passage goes on. Look at what it says, verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good, we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And in this incredible second portion of this scene, this moment, Peter, James, and John wake up. They were fast asleep, and they see this incredible display of God's brilliance, his majesty. They see them. Jesus interacting with Moses and Elijah. Peter says, let's make some tents. Let, let's, let me make a dwelling place, God, for you. And when it says, not knowing what he said, it wasn't so much that Peter was saying something wrong, but it was more so he didn't quite realize how right it was what he was saying. That as he was trying to set up these tents to give Jesus and, and, and Moses and Elijah a place to dwell, do you see the irony? Jesus is the dwelling place of God with man. He is the fulfillment of the tabernacle, the tent where God met with his people. He's the fulfillment of the temple, the place where God met with his people. He himself has descended, if you will, on this mountain. The, the glory, the splendor, the, 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 the smoke, they were afraid. In the same way that they were afraid at Mount Sinai, so they see this glimpse of God's incredible brilliance and glory. God come for us, with us, to redeem us and to pave the way and to lead the way, to lead our way into glory. Now, notice the pattern that this passage has taken. At the beginning of the verses that we looked at, Jesus has given us a glimpse into his mission. Suffering, rejection, death, risen three days later, and then we get a future peek into the fullness of the glory that is yet to come. My friends, that incredible V-shape of the gospel, if you will, one where Christ is humbled to death and 
raised back up, not just to life, but life eternal. Not just to this world, but a renovated world. Glory. His path is your path when you trust him. His journey becomes your journey. And is there a better way to symbolize that than through baptism? I think not. I think that's why God has given it to us, because it's this incredible expression of it. Do you see? There's nothing magical about these waters or this tank, but don't think for a second. Don't think for one minute that this is empty symbolism, that it points to something ultimately true, ultimately true of all who've trusted Christ as their Savior, that Christ delivers us through death into both a transformed life now and into glory forever. That we raise uh, into new life, that there can be real life change now. Well, we're not going to be perfect on this side of glory. No one is. But the hope of the gospel for the daily walk with Christ is that he's growing us, he's shaping us, he's molding us, he's polishing us, that, that as we walk with him dying to ourselves daily, we can have genuine, real life change and life transformation now. And that means there's hope to the different bondages, the different sins, the different patterns, the different habits, generational sins. There's hope that those can be broken and turned around. And we know the depth of Christ's redeeming, transformative power because he went to death to accomplish it. He rose back up to new life to accomplish it. We can have a changed life now and, and a guaranteed position in glory. That that which he started, he will complete. The grace that he initiated in, in our life, in Jesus Christ, is a grace that will ultimately lead us home. So as we observe today these baptisms, would you have all of this flood your mind? That as you watch people go under the water and come back up, recognize this is not religious sentimentality. It's not empty symbolism. It points to something ultimately true of those who are getting baptized, of all believers, and it points to something that can be true of you. Maybe you're here today, and you're still checking out Christianity. Recognize and know that by faith, this story can become yours. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. It's a question worth wrestling through, and it's a question that will change your life now and forever. Let me pray. Father, we, we thank you for this incredible grace Lord that you went first you took a path that none of us could have ever taken in our own strength and you took that path and journey for us so Father I pray I pray soon as we respond to this in singing may the gospel motivate and fuel our hearts of adoration later Lord as we experience and participate in these baptisms May it be an encouragement, certainly to those being baptized, but to all of us as a family of faith. May this moment truly be one of celebration because we have something to celebrate. We have something worthy of, of joy and something to declare to you that you alone get the glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.